thrash it out a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it i'm brian latendry and i'm anthony johnston and today we are talking about the 2004 album once by nightwish their best-selling album still almost 20 years later and the only full album i have ever listened to from nightwish oh really yeah okay had you listened to them much before this at all? No. Um, I would say that I had been familiar with a few of their singles, maybe, but never... Mm-hmm. Um, and I always knew that they were a band that was uh, super popular, and um, I see them come around every once in a while in con- for concerts and stuff like that, but yeah. I never really dove into their stuff. And so getting to listen to this album and really kind of sit with it for a while was a surprising it was different than i thought it was going to be for sure oh okay that yeah. well that is interesting then i mean because i was going to say i guess if you were previously mostly familiar with their singles surely that would include at least one or two songs from this album yeah the the angel song on nemo this and uh wish i had an angel were both like big single successes yeah the wish i had an angel one is uh Definitely one that I had heard before. Nemo, I don't think was, or at least it didn't immediately click with me that it was one that I had heard before. But I think we've talked about this before, and we'll get into it more when we talk about the album. But um, the the whole symphonic metal challenge that I've had is that, for me, often the metal part isn't as strong as I need it to be for me to feel, Mm -hmm. to keep coming back to that sure. and so whether whether it's the orchestral elements or whether it's the you know the, the keyboards or whatever uh, for a lot of uh or, or this kind of soaring vocals in many cases for me those things all take a big front seat and the harder elements take a back seat and so that's where i struggle with most symphonic metal and um this album pleasantly surprised me in multiple songs and we can jump okay, into that cool. but yeah it definitely um it changed who I thought Nightwish was, I think. Oh, great. Oh, okay, well, that's potentially good news then, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll just... Uh, we don't really have any follow-up to the last episode, but I will say we have uh, three new patrons since that last episode, uh, and that's Raphael Dongan, Paul Groans, and Jonathan Lamantia. So welcome, you guys. Thank you for uh, supporting us and becoming patrons. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, for once, no goofs, I don't think. <laughs> in the previous episode. <laughs> no, but plenty of discussion off yes. of the previous episode on our Facebook page. This was uh I guess for many people I guess pleasantly surprised they were by the fact that uh it, it seems like I think the takeaway was Brian's finally getting around to hair metal. Um <laughs> that was definitely part of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean there was a, as we predicted on the episode there was a lot of rejoicing from certain elements of the uh Facebook yes. group and the and our patrons uh going like hurrah finally uh you know feeling that that, that was an album that Rat was a, a band yes. that was kind of long overdue to be covered. Um yeah. but I mean I was pleasantly surprised, you know, as we said on the uh during the episode a bit like the whole the twisted sister thing, you know, it was that album was much better and I enjoyed it much more than I expected to, than I ever thought I would. Yes, absolutely. And I think that was reflected in the comments too, of like, well, I, I was expecting Anthony to really not like this album. And so I'll, I'll dive into a few of the comments here. Uh, Chris said, hair metal it is. Super stoked to dive into this one. Grew up hearing Rat uh, from my folks and two of my uncles. That just made me feel old when I read that. Um <laughs> 
It's like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. my parents listen to rat. I'm like, oh God, that's yeah. uh, great. Awesome. Uh, you know, good for your parents, but also hurtful. Um, David said, I cannot believe it's taken this long for you guys to listen to this album, <laughs> to which you responded, well, it took me nearly 40 years. <laughs> uh, Joe said, whenever Round and Round came on MTV, I cranked it up, bought it on cassette quickly. Rat and Motley Crue seemed to be the start of metal going more mainstream. That's an interesting point. And I don't disagree with that because I think Rat and Motley Crue are both like super involved in the hair metal mainstream. But I also feel like that is MTV. Like for me, MTV yeah. is so, especially in the States, MTV is so just woven into rock becoming the mainstream and, and like hair metals dominance and just the, especially the glam metal elements of hair metal and the theatrical elements of hair metal really just meshing well with the, the MTV, the music video, you know, sort mm -hmm. of, uh, time there. But yeah, both of them, you know, really, uh, really part of that. I'm uh, glad that you clarified in the US as well, because I mean, we did have MTV over here, MTV Europe and stuff, but our uh, sort of, you know, our Headbangers Ball, for example, was different uh, to yours, you know, and the music video rotation was different. And it, it's, it's, I don't know, it's funny because to me, the, the, the first sort of signs of mainstreaming metal over here, I mean, not that it's ever really become mainstream rock music has always been mainstream you know sort of dad rock prog rock that kind uh -huh. of thing has always been mainstream in the sense that it's popular and uh you know kind of there's no shame if you like in listening to it uh whereas metal even now i mean maybe i don't know the last 10 20 years because of the generational shift but certainly you know even into my late 20s and 30s it was still, you were still the weirdo if you were the one who listened to heavy metal, you know? Um, but the mainstreaming of it in terms of awareness over here came from bands like Motorhead and Iron Maiden, who obviously are very different <laughs> to bands like Motley Crue sure. and, and Rat. Um, so I think that, I'm not sure what that says. It feels like it says something, but I'm not sure what it says exactly about the the differences and approaches to rock music and metal between the UK and the US, but it does feel significant, you know? Yeah. And I feel like, and I could, this, this is just my personal interpretation of it, but I feel like hair metal and glam metal were the bridge because you had your, your sort of more uh, traditional rock and, and your seventies and early eighties stuff that was mm. super, super popular. And then you had your more um, traditional metal elements. Right. And, and then there in the middle bridging both of those was kind of hair metal which for we say hair hair metal is a broad term obviously and glam metal is a broad term but there's a lot of that music that is very much more towards the rock side of things and then there's elements of that music that is very much more toward the metal side of things and often yeah the same bands hitting both sides of that um coin and on the same albums and so it was this kind of bridge to you know to these different genres that that also played really well from a visual format. And so then when you throw that in, in, in the early days of MTV, until everybody was making videos and until, you know, there was enough to fill the programming day, you had, and this is, I think, tr profoundly in influenced my sort of listening tastes overall, 
it was all played together. So you would go from, uh, right. you know, because Michael Jackson's videos to fill yeah. the space otherwise. Yeah. So I you'd hear that. like Michael Jackson's beat it and then you'd hear an Aerosmith song and then Motley Crue would play. And then it would, and then you'd hear, you know, I think we joked last time, like Cindy Lauper would be next and stuff yeah. like, so there was, there was a time where that stuff was all lumped together and, and it wasn't uncommon to get all of those different sort of influences there in the same kind of programming block. And so I think that that kind of helped with the whole like rock becoming the mainstream thing as well. Um, but yeah, certainly uh, rat fit the bill from a glam standpoint and their videos, especially, you know, bringing Milton Burl in the videos and stuff like that. Like they were always entertaining videos that rap put out. Yeah. Stunt casting in videos used to be quite a thing actually in the heyday of the music yeah. video, didn't it? I don't think it really happens as much anymore, but uh Yeah. And I don't know why exactly, just because it was a new thing that people were doing. So maybe it was easy to get those actors and, and celebrities and stuff to kind of, yeah, do guest appearances in videos. I don't know. But I, I do remember there being a fair amount of it in the 80s and then really not so much post-grunge at all. I'm looking through the comments. Oh, uh, Brendo said, I still listen to this album on the all the way through, especially when I need to pick me up. It was one of those albums in the 80s that I listened to in secret, as I was and still am, heavily into thrash and heavier styles. This album was just too damn catchy and well-written. Um, that's a whole other <laughs> like conversation rabbit hole that we could go down, <laughs> but just the idea of like when it became no longer cool to be into like hair metal and glam metal and like you weren't metal enough if you didn't um you know if you didn't if you weren't like solely into like metallica and megadeth and anthrax and stuff like that like if you liked these other bands then you weren't metal enough and that kind of stuff and uh that's just a, a fascinating you know period of time where there was this kind of warring back and forth between you know what was metal enough and what wasn't and i think that hit peak when thrash and hair metal were kind of fighting it out for what was more popular at the time you know yeah that sort of tribalism although i I mean you're right that was a kind of that was a peak of it and a flashpoint but you could make an argument that it was grunge versus anything that wasn't grunge (laughs) that was literally going (laughs) to be my next Right, was kind of a bigger clash because, you know, as we all saw when it happened in the 90s, suddenly all the metal bands started playing effectively like grunge metal uh, because if you were doing anything that was, you know, close to sort of what was then, I guess, considered traditional metal, you were so on hip. <laughs> well, not only that, but it was like a situation where, you know, you've got the the thrash metal, you know, group and you've got the hair metal group sort of fighting it out over here and then grunge just came along and said heck that's cute you're both done now right you, yeah. <laughs> you're both you're both done now and they were like what what it was like they didn't see it coming you know what i mean and so oh, it, blindsided everyone yeah, yeah. It's, it's just funny like I'll, i i always go back to the idea of i think it was 1991 when i saw the clash of the titans tour and it was slayer anthrax megadeth and alice in chains was opening alice in chains yeah got booed off the stage two years later they're headlining you know, they're they're the they're the popular band of the day, and then these other bands would be on bills underneath them, and uh, yeah, so it was. It, it's just kind of funny how that stuff worked out. Um, let's see what else. Joe said, "I can't believe Anthony had never heard of any Rat. This video was huge on MTV and got a lot of play on rock radio in the U.S. 
He said, you mentioned hearing a little Motley Crue. Have you ever heard of any of the other hair bands that Brian loves from the 80s? Winger, Warrant, Poison, Cinderella, Great White, etc. Or would you need to hear specific songs to know if you had heard from them? Yeah, I definitely need to hear specific songs because my my instinct is to say no. Like if you ask me to name a single song by any of those bands, I would be like, nope, no idea. But it's possible, yeah, that I may have heard one or two before on MTV or on the, you know, even on the radio perhaps. Uh, but yeah, I certainly couldn't name any off the top of my head. Uh, of course, our friend Phil was extremely excited about this episode and posted a picture of himself from 1986 oh, yeah. with his uh, drumsticks <laughs> and his spandex yeah. and his hair. It was, it's great. Um, he said, uh, he his verdict was, I did rat justice uh, so much. He said, I really don't have too much to add. Uh, I found I was nodding, laughing, and saying, yep, to everything that you and Anthony were saying. And I love that Anthony even found some stuff he liked. The Motorhead vibe Anthony pointed out uh, on I'm Insane surprised me, as I would never have thought Motorhead for anything rad. But now that I go back and listen, I can hear it. Yeah, it's definitely there. I mean, I, I did listen to that track again, you know, when I was editing the episode and inserting the music and stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm like, it's definitely there. Todd said, uh, first band t-shirt I ever owned, and he posted, posted a picture of that. He said, got this at a state fair in either 84 or 85, and I would have been eight or nine years old at the time. And it's all ripped and everything. It's awesome. It's a great... Uh, <laughs> uh, Christopher said, Rat is a band who has a bunch of songs I like, but I don't have any of their albums. While not in my wheelhouse, I will certainly take Rat over the likes of Motley Crue, Def Leppard, and Poison. Much like Vince Neil, YouTube is littered with videos of rap performances where Piercy sounds hideous. Stephen Piercy, the singer of rap. He said, fun listen, maybe a hint of things to come. Do we have a Wasp episode in this volume? Um, no spoilers for what? Well, no spoilers, but you have said many times that you want to do a Wasp episode. So, yeah, you know, whether it comes this volume or in a future one, I don't think there's any question that it will happen at some point. A bit like the mythical Alice in Chains episode that we keep saying we're going to do and then <laughs> we never get around to. <laughs> I have a similar problem with Alice in Chains as I do. With, well, not a similar problem. The, the stuff with Rat is that there's a lot of Rat stuff, uh, not Rat, uh, Wasps stuff that is so cringy that it's tough to, you know, kind of figure out what would be the album that I would want to uh, sure. put out there. You just have to go into a Wasp album, like embracing the fact that like, yes, this is a very much a snapshot in time. And we're just going to, you know, we're just going to take I mean, it for what it is at the time, which I think we do a good job of overall on the show. Right. Especially like a I was lot of say, the like two episodes ago, we did storm, which for heaven's sake. Oh uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, but there are some, uh, levels that are worse than others in terms of whether it's lyrically or imagery or anything like that. And so it's, it's, you know, um, not that I'm shying away from any of that stuff, but also with, with, uh, Wasp, there are like two albums that I would go back and forth between of like, which one do I want to do? And that is the problem I would have with Alice in Chains as well of like, which one, there's two albums to me for Alice in Chains that I would be like, I can't decide which one of these that I want to sort of go into. But, um, but yeah, I mean, rat, we talked about, which one I do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and, and and that's the beauty. Like we've said it before, but like, there is no dibs here. So I, I don't know if the listeners know, like you and I truly do not ever talk about like, what are the next three or four albums that I'm considering or three or four oh, bands no. that I'm no, considering? No, no. That, would, like, that would ruin half the fun. Right. Yeah. Or like, you know, I really want to be the one to pick the Alice in Chains album, or you really want to be the one to pick this album. Like we 
from the get-go of the show, and that's one of the things I love about it, it is just if you're if at the end of this episode I was like, the next one's Alice in Chains, like, yep, that's what it is then. You know, and that is what it's like every episode of the show is we don't know until the audience, you know, is finding out as well of like the only ones that we know ahead of time are the first episode of a volume. But even in those, we don't talk about it until it's time to start preparing to record the episode of like, okay, we're going to start up a new volume in a couple of weeks. We're going to schedule the time to record. This is the album that I've chosen for you know for the first episode yeah one. absolutely yeah yep. yeah we don't, we don't we don't plan you know there's nothing planned like six months in advance or anything the only thing that we have occasionally talked about uh are the bonus episodes um where sometimes we'll be halfway through recording a volume and i get an idea and think oh and i think this happened with the probot one for example i think about halfway through that volume i suddenly thought oh we could do probot for the uh, for the bonus. Uh-huh. And I think I suggested that to you at the time, but it still wasn't actually firmly decided until after we'd recorded the final regular episode of the volume. Right. So on those rare bands that we both love a particular band and both know that like, oh yeah, this is going to be one that we cover at some point in time. It is truly a mystery as to <laughs> when we're going right. to do it, what album it's going to be. And what, whose choice it hundred percent. Yeah. And so for there there's not that many bands out there i think now that are still like on both of our lists as like we're definitely doing this but um for certain alice and chains there's, is one there's of those a few. yeah yeah um let's see greg said i'm trying to remember where and how i first heard round and round i know i bought out of the cellar as a student in aberdeen in late 84 and after hearing after hearing said single that narrows it down to either entertainment usa on the bbc which is where i first heard tommy shaw's girls with guns that year or on the European cable channel Music Box, which was always playing in Radars, a long-lost Aberdonian-American restaurant that was way before its time. And then he said, which is where I first heard Lizzie Borden, about the same time. I've never uh, heard of either of those shows. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, what I love about, especially the older stuff that we dive into, is it does take everybody back to that sort of moment in time of like, yeah. oh yeah, I was a sophomore in high school and this came out and this is, I remember seeing this and I remember going there. I mean, I just did it with the Allison chains, you know, concert in 1991. Right. I do. I love that sort of like, where were you when, um, Oh piece. yeah. I, I can remember exactly where I was speaking of Alice in chains. Uh, I can remember exactly where I was when I first heard Alice in chains. And that was in uh, a friend's lounge like 1am or something watching MTV and the uh, video for wood played and he'd heard it before. And he was like, Oh, like watch this. You're going to, you're going to love this, especially this bit at the end. Um, you know, and you know, the bit he's talking about when you get that weird chord change and stuff. And uh, yeah. And, and it blew my mind uh, so much that, yeah, I very, very specifically remember sitting, you know, on the couch in his lounge uh, watching that video because it really was a kind of like, whoa, I'd never heard anything like that before. Um, one of the questions that came up in that episode is we were talking about our first jobs and sort of listening to music, whether on on the job or on the go or whatever. And so Phil had chimed in and said to Brian's questions about first jobs and listening to music on the go. He said, my first job was as a paper boy in 83, 84, and I'd crank my Walkman for the two hours each day I delivered newspapers. He said, you bet your ass out of the cellar was in heavy rotation. My second job. Two hours every day. My God. (laughs) 
Oh, paper routes are no joke. Um, he said, my second job was as a stock boy in a huge furniture store, and I could listen to my Walkman while I vacuumed and dusted the entire store for hours most nights. My next job was doing data entry, and I listened to my Walkman every minute I worked. Um, just to go back, well, I, I think I, I must have told the story where I worked at a grocery store. And so uh, I first my first job was at a hockey rink, and I was a janitor there. And so I w- could listen to music when I was there. But my my high school job was at a grocery store, and they used to send me out to the parking lot to collect, collect all the, the carriages. Yeah. And uh, just hours and hours, I would just bring my Walkman with me, and just I would be outside for entire hours, especially like during the summer when I worked the most hours. I was just out all summer long listening to music. It was amazing. um let's see what else we have here uh damien said the best so-called hair metal album of all time if it wasn't for all the hair metal bands to follow it would have just been a perfect rock slash metal album i don't want to listen to this episode because i grew up with this album and i hold it in such high regard he said and i get the fact that it may not be as good to others as it is for me but i don't feel like people uh, but i do feel like people who weren't there uh or don't feel like they would realize the perfection based on the time I feel like our audience has done a pretty good job of getting in the moment of like whatever yeah, we're so. listening yeah. to and and not necessarily comparing it to today. So anyways, uh, Damien did eventually listen to the episode, I think. Um, he said, I was pleasantly surprised to not have Anthony completely tear apart the album and to actually have some positive <laughs> thoughts on it. Great episode. Um yeah, every I mean every episode is probably one of someone's favorite bands, right? So there's always that right. anxiety yeah. of like, oh, I hope they don't hate this thing that I absolutely love so much. Uh there was a conversation about uh whether lack of communication was in 7 8 or not. <laughs> the, oh with, yeah. <laughs> with sheet music included. Um <laughs> let's see what else. Uh someone linked uh David linked the behind the music special if you want to learn more about rat. So there's a link to the YouTube. Uh it's on YouTube if you just search for it too. You can see the behind the music on uh rat. Uh Dave said a great episode. I enjoyed it for a few reasons. Number one, I missed you guys. Number two, Brian's love for a knowledge of rat really shined through. At times I felt like I had been invited to <laughs> invited to a TED talk. Uh and he said <laughs> three, James Gunn's HBO Max show Peacemaker where the title character loves hair metal uh, might have made me more appreciative of bands like rat. Um, I have had several people comment about that to me because I haven't watched peacemaker yet. It's on my queue, you know, I'm, I'm going to get around to it eventually, but yeah, I've had several people comment to me expecting that I have seen it precisely because there is apparently loads of eighties metal featured uh, on the soundtrack. Yeah. There are some deep cuts on that soundtrack. I mean, anything, basically anything James Gunn does, he's very tight, you know, tied into matching music with characters or matching yeah. music with the film and stuff like that. And Peacemaker does not disappoint in that, in that area for sure. Uh, John oh, Cena does a good right. job with that character too. I really liked it. Um, Chris said, I've never owned or listened to a rat album. He said, but nobody rides for free is one of my all time favorite songs. Thanks to point break. Uh, yes, that was, Man, this has come up a couple times, but at oh, some okay. well, point. It, so if that song's in that movie, then I had heard some rap before without realizing it, because I have seen Point Break, you know, not dozens of times, but a fair few times. So make a mental years. note. It's Nobody Rides for Free is the rap song that is on the Point Break soundtrack. And that reminds me that at some point as a bonus episode, we'll have to do a soundtrack uh, because I think especially in 
I don't feel like that's the case anymore where soundtracks are a big deal as far not in the in movies for video games i feel like soundtracks are a huge deal now and i almost feel like it's transferred over to video games where the the soundtrack to a video game is something that is super popular now you know there's vinyl issues of uh so many different game soundtracks and things like that but back in the day especially 80s and 90s there were so many soundtracks that were like, let's bring a ton of awesome bands together or great musicians of a particular genre and put out uh, songs that were specifically made for this soundtrack. And there's so many good 80s and early 90s soundtracks that just have a ton of great songs on them. So maybe bonus episode at some point in time. At some point, yeah. Uh, last one I'll do here. Joe said, I agree with Brian that rat is more of a singles band. I really liked the first album and eagerly bought the second, but then I spent my money on albums by doc and Megadeth, etc., And just listened to the rat I heard on the radio and MTV until I uh, bought the greatest hits on CD that Brian mentioned that greatest hits album. Like all of those eighties bands have good, uh, collections and greatest hits album, but the rat one is great. Because they can actually fill out a greatest hits album with just, <laughs> you know, for on some of those, it's, uh, to have a collection of quote unquote greatest hits is. No, I know what you mean. It's like maybe you could fill one side on. Yeah, on totally. Album, but uh, but then you're stretching it. Yeah. But Rat has enough singles to fill out a greatest hits album, and there, I think it's eighty-one to ninety-one is the name of that collection. But it's great. So yeah, lots of awesome discussion on this episode, just as with every episode on the facebook page and just great discussion overall so you can go and check that stuff out uh great reaction to the rat episode so thanks everyone for jumping into the conversation absolutely yeah and uh yeah you can find the group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out uh and join in the conversation uh it's one of those because of the way facebook's group rules have changed you can read anything in the group now uh which i think was always the case anyway but if you try to comment we get a thing saying like oh so and so is trying to comment in your for the first time in your group as long as you're not a dick it's fine just do it you know or or apply to join or whatever and we'll we say yes to everyone uh we do also occasionally then ban people who do turn out to be dicks but you know that's your own lookout um but we admit everybody to start with (laughs) yeah i mean there's only one rule it's It's literally the only rule on the page yeah i mean Um, there we give you more homework after each episode than we do rules to remember for the facebook group so it's it's an easy one to remember uh and of course if you want to support us uh, as those lovely new people did and i mentioned at the start of the episode on patreon you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out uh and uh, make your pledge and remember we only you only get charged when we put out an episode so even though for example this episode is a bit late you know brian and i have both had uh just you know sort of snowed under with life and work and what have you um but nobody's been charged in the meantime you know you won't sort of we're not going to charge you every month even if we're not putting out an episode so uh just go to patreon.com slash thrash it out make your pledge and uh help support the show we are almost almost at 100 active patrons uh now historically we've had more than 100 but you know people come and go as you know they have to sort of leave because of finances or whatever uh but we are now almost at 100 actually active you know concurrently active patrons which would be nice if we could break that 100 barrier that would be uh that would be very sweet indeed yeah that would be awesome and can obviously cannot thank enough anybody who has at any point in time been a patron of the show 
especially oh, yeah. over the past couple of years where, you know, everyone's finances have been thrown into complete disarray and just with everything well, well, going and on, they we still appreciate are, it. You know, with inflation around the world going up and, you know, energy prices spiraling and all that sort of stuff, you know, it's we, we know that, you know, money is tight for a lot of people. So, yeah, we really appreciate anybody who can afford to to help support the show. Thank you. All right, moving on. Let's talk about Nightwish. Let's do it. Uh, so we haven't, and part of the reason why I decided, why I chose this album, as I mentioned last time, we haven't really done any sort of true symphonic metal since Within Temptation, um, which was way back in volume one. <laughs> so, I know. You know it, it's been a while. Um, but what we have done, to be fair, what we have done is quite a bit of doom and gothic metal. And there is, there is a connection there. Um, you know, certainly Nightwish are one of the more gothic of the symphonic metal bands, but, you know, as one of the pioneers of the genre as well, they did kind of set the tone. Um, and I, I think, I mean, I, I can't say definitively why that is, but for me, certainly, I think you'll find a lot of metal heads and especially metal musicians who are fans of classical music, myself included. And for most of us, certainly for me and for other people that I've spoken to, it's the drama of classical that draws us in the most. So, uh, especially musicians, you know, songwriters, then when they sit down to write something, they're not thinking, Oh, I would like to write a metal song that has the same feeling as, uh, Ina Klein Nacht music or the four <laughs> seasons. Like that's not, you know, <laughs> what we're thinking is Rider the Valkyries, you know, or Isle of the dead or something really dramatic and bombastic like that. Um, and I think that's why there is that connection between classical, doom, symphonic, gothic. They're all kind of, we've talked about it before, the theatre of it, you know, the drama of it is a great attraction for a lot of people, myself included. Uh, and I think it's that's what ties all of them together. Um, and it's also what ties the, the influence of prog rock to these bands. And I mentioned that, I mean, everybody knows, I think regular listeners know that, you know, I'm an old prog rock fan, but uh, Thomas from Nightwish has specifically cited 70s prog rock bands like Yes, Genesis, King Crimson, all that sort of thing uh, as an influence on his songwriting. And I think you can see that because part of what influenced those bands was also, again, classical song structure or not song structure, but, you know, sort of music structure, movement structure. And that is what separates i think a band like nightwish from within temptation because from the outside you could look at them and go well they're very so you know a bit like somebody would look at megadeth and metallica and go well they're the same band aren't they um you know and it's not until you sort of get into them that you see the differences and i think you could the same thing could happen with say nightwish and within temptation but the difference is a band like within temptation and a lot of the symphonic metal bands especially the more modern ones write rock and metal songs that use symphonic instrumentation to, you know, sort of layer on, on top of those songs. Whereas Nightwish and some of the much more, you know, symphonically inclined symphonic metal bands tend to actually write stuff with more of a classically influenced structure like prog rock. Does that make sense? Did, did you get that from this album? I think it makes complete sense. And for me, so I, I when you when you talk about the drama and the and all of that stuff that completely resonates with me. For me, 
an entire sort of tie into this genre of music and really any metal or rock that that has that sort of classical influence is tabletop role playing games like it, sure. for me like that being a huge interest of mine like being a huge fan and and it's funny because um i i read that nightwish has references to both Dragonlance, which is one of my favorite fantasy. That Dragonlance is my Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings. And yeah. so, uh, that but, d- crucially, they're referencing the books, not the games. Cause I did see Correct. somebody, I saw an interview where somebody directly asked Thomas, like, are you RPG players? And he's like, no, but we do read the books. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and ironically, like I, that's how I started with Dragonlance is through the books and not the adventure modules for, uh, AD and D. But, uh, but yeah, so for me, like that, there's something about this music that transports me to that um, setting and time and, and sort of story driven um, piece. And and to mm. your point about it, you know, this the, the classical nature of what they're doing being embedded and and naturally a part of the songs that they're creating, as opposed to bands that are adding classical elements on top of the yeah. you know the rock and metal songs that they're writing. I definitely agree with. I feel like it's it is more it it's just the roots are much deeper here. Like they're they're definitely um in the DNA of the songs in a way that yeah. they don't feel like an add-on at all. They feel like if you tried to take those away these songs wouldn't exist. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I mean and that's not to knock bands like within temptation. Yeah, I chose them in volume 1 because I really love them. Um but it is a very different approach to that whole symphonic side of things. Um, I was also, I was, <laughs> so you've said that, uh, you know, you weren't that familiar with them. You'd heard one or two singles. I was trying to remember where I first heard Nightwish and I actually can't. And it's not, it's not quite a Stormwitch situation where, <laughs> where I'm like, how did this album wind up in my collection? It's more that I think I, First heard them in the early 2000s, around the time of the album preceding this one, Century Child, which was 2002, I think. Um, but I didn't, and I heard them and I thought, oh, that's not bad, but I didn't get into them per se. And the, I mean, the truth is I'm not, I'm still not really into them in the way that I'm into a band like, say, Paradise Lost or you're into Megadeth. Sure. But I will happily listen to them and I do have a couple of albums. But the funny thing is that as as I was sort of trying to trace back my history of listening to them, I realized that I was already listening to them when, uh, so rewinding the history a bit, Tiara Trunen, the lead singer, the operatic lead singer that everybody associates with Nightwish, you know, one of the most visible singers in, female singers in the metal scene. She's the, was the face of the band for many years, no longer with them, obviously. Um, When she left or was kicked out, depending on which side of the story you believe. I was already listening to them. I already knew who Nightwish were. I had already, you know, uh, listened to them. And I think I had this album. But it's... But I thought that at the time, I was like, oh yeah, Nightwish, uh, you know, I, I remember them from a couple of years ago, blah, blah, blah. But then I looked at the timeline and I'm like, no, hang on, I already had this album. Like, so maybe I was more into them then I realized because it wasn't that long after this album was released that she left. So I don't know whether, I don't know what happened if maybe I bought this album thinking at the time when I bought it, thinking that it was a year or two old and actually it was only, you know, a few weeks old. <laughs> it's, it's very strange. I cannot, it's a long time ago and I cannot remember for the life of me. 
Um, but I feel like for me, my awareness of this band is like tied to Evanescence. Like there, oh, really? like that there was a period of time where it was like, oh, you like Evanescence? Have you ever heard of Nightwish? And it was one of those sort of things. And I, I don't even know off the top of my head, like when Evanescence's big first, I don't know if it was their first album or whatever, because I wasn't super into them, but they were extremely popular for a period of time, especially yeah, yeah. over here. Um, but I feel like it was that sort of thing. It was like, uh, oh, I, I want to hear more of, you know, um, female singer with amazing range, you know, uh, metal that's incorporating these other elements and, and things like that. And so I've been listening to Nightwish. There's, I don't, I think they're extremely different bands, but, uh, I feel like my, uh, my initial awareness of Nightwish probably is in some way connected to Evanescence. I mean, Evanescence absolutely popularized that for many, many people, uh, you know, especially many sort of non-traditional metal fans, if you like, you know, many people outside of the the culture. Yeah, Evanescence's first album was 2003, which was a year after that album I just mentioned from Nightwish, Century Child. Um, it, you know, their, Nightwish's second album, uh, Oceanborn was their sort of their first breakout, if you like, the one that kind of made them popular within the metal scene. Yeah. But then it was this album once that made them really popular, uh, you know, including sort of non-traditional metal fans and what have you. But that post-dated Evanescence's first album. But Evanescence was formed in the 90s, as were Nightwish. So I have no idea if there's any connection of influence or if they were even aware of one another at that point and within temptation as i mentioned also you know were formed before evanescence broke big um so yeah but that definitely tracks then for me if like you know if uh, the evanescence album comes out in 2003 even though this is the fifth studio album from nightwish it's their most successful album exactly which means it would you know their singles would have probably been more around on the radio and everything and then you know, a year later, that stuff is, is popping up. I, that, that tracks for me. Yeah. Yeah. As I say, it's a very tangled web, the whole sort of the, you know, these three bands and who was, who was there first and it was anybody copying anybody else. And I don't think at this point, anybody could really say definitively one way or the other, but they were definitely all in the mix at around the the same time. Yeah. And the irony is like you would have that would have happened through the radio, like for me, whereas nowadays, yeah. like if you were listening to one of these bands on Spotify, it would be like, Oh, you like that? Here's this, 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 and this. Right. Or like, on YouTube. Yeah. yeah or yeah. on YouTube or on whatever you're listening to. Like any sort of streaming service, you'd get like fifteen recommendations of bands that even remotely had a connection to the same type of music. Yeah. <laughs> um but back then it was a it was a pretty organic of uh well, back then we relied on djs or basically. i might like i i might have walked into a music outlet my local music store and said yeah oh, like yeah, too, do, yeah do, sure. do you have any other bands that are kind of like this yeah you should be checking out nightwish if you're not familiar with them you know so like um but you yeah definitely- djs and record store owners kind of took the place of the the playlist with the algorithms on spotify <laughs> right the, the, my local guy was the algorithm yeah, <laughs> where it truly and the two uh, local radio stations that we had that played rock and metal were the algorithm for that, and it was like certain shows or certain conversations where it'd be like, yeah, if you like this, you should check out this, and um, which I think, yeah. not to be the old man, you know, sitting on the front porch and stuff like that, but I I think it was manageable in those conversations because it was like instead of twenty recommendations, it was like here's two or yeah. three. Like, oh, you liked this? Why don't you check out this and this? 
to and be it, fair, there were also a lot less bands true. just around in general and, and accessible at that point. But like I have mentioned before, like my buddy and I used to go, we'd cash our checks from the grocery store and the music store was in the same little plaza at the time. And so we would walk over to the music store with our cash and buy every album that came out that week. So to your point, much less music, you know, coming out at the time. But And it was manageable. Like between the two of us, we would buy every rock or metal album that came out that week. Um, That's impossible. Yeah. Well, I mean, you couldn't even money aside. Let's say you had like a Spotify account. There is not enough time in the week for you to listen to every uh, absolutely metal album release, let alone every regular album release. But certainly, even in you know, even in something as relatively low volume compared to say R and B or indie music or whatever as metal, there is not enough time. You could literally, if you didn't sleep and just sat listening to the new releases every week, you would still fall behind. For it's sure. Just way, way so, not too much new music, because that's, you know, that that's not what I mean to say, but there's certainly more than you can listen to. Um, yeah, it's kind of nuts. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So yeah, Nightwish formed in the mid to late 90s, um, went through a couple of small lineup changes and then kind of hit big, as I said, with their album, the second album, Motion Born, uh, which was what got them noticed in the metal scene. And they built and built and became more and more popular. And then this album, yeah, their fifth, was what really broke them out and had like hit singles and their best-selling album ever. Uh, at the time, was apparently the most expensive album ever recorded in Finland. Um, cost a quarter of a million euros to record, which again, like these days seems, how could you spend a quarter of a million euros recording an album? But you know, this, that was what people did in those days. Cause you had to do everything in a recording studio. Um, and that record held until their next album, <laughs> which then cost half a million euros. Uh, but they, the whole thing is originally the brainchild of the guy I mentioned before, Thomas Holopainen, who's the keyboardist and basically the main songwriter. Like there are other people involved in some of the songwriting, but he's always been the sort of the main guy writing all the music and all the lyrics. Um, and yeah, formed it, like I said, with Tarja Turunen, who's the, uh, the operatic lead singer that kind of set the, the tone for what the band was going to sound like. Um, and then on this album you have, um, and I apologize by the way, to any Finnish listeners, uh, Finnish speakers listening out there. Cause I'm sure I'm butchering these days. Oh, I haven't even best. started yet, but I will also <laughs> add to that apology right now. <laughs> I'm doing my best. So you got Empu Vorinen, uh, on guitars. Who's a really good guitarist actually. Like yes. it's amazing when you listen to this album to think, Oh, there's only one guitarist. That's kind of nuts. Um, Marco Hirtela, who is the bassist and also the male vocalist you hear on this album. And he joined, uh, I think just before that album I mentioned, Century Child, um, and uh, brought with him a lot of experience. He was older than the rest of the band, had been in many bands before, and, you know, sort of had experienced songwriting as well. So he became one of the co-songwriters. And then a guy called uh, Yuka Nevalainen, uh, on the drums, who is no longer with the band, I don't think, but he had been with them for some time. So this is kind of just because, because this is what happens, isn't it? Just because this is their most successful album, that's what people regard as the classic yeah. lineup of Nightwish. But they have had quite a few personnel changes over the years. Obviously now, Floor Janssen is their 
has been their lead singer for about 10 years now, actually. Um, and that was following after Taria left. They got uh, Annette Olsen in to do a couple of albums uh, following this one. And then she left or was kicked out again, depending on <laughs> which side of the argument you believe. And then finally, yeah, they seem to have settled on Floor Janssen, who's, uh, who's now, like I say, been with them for about 10 years. And he's much more like Taria than Annette was. Um, but he's also obviously just a great singer in her own right. This now was this the first album that they went full orchestra for? It, it's it's not so. One of the things about this album, you can draw a lot of parallels between this album and you know sort of peak most successful albums, if you like, of a lot of other bands actually. In that, nothing on this album is new. In that, you know, the Marco had already joined the band and recorded an album with them. They had already recorded some songs with orchestras. Uh, you know, they had already moved away from their original. When they started, they were much more of a power metal band, you know, and yeah. they'd sort of been slowly moving towards the symphonic sound. All of that stuff they had done before, but this is the album where it, it really clicked, you know, where they were kind of at the height of their powers um, and everything kind of came together. And yes, all of the orchestral parts on this album, I believe, are actually performed by an orchestra and all the choral bits are performed by a real choir. Yeah, um, and I and it and was just the first time they've done that for the whole album. I believe that this is the first time it was the London Session Orchestra that yes. they used. And the choir is the Metro Voices choir, if I'm not right. mistaken. And so um which and, uh, I mean amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and apparently the first song they recorded was "Ghost Love Score," which is like the longest song. On I mean, the it's album. an. I, my note on that one is it's an album within itself. Um, it, it kind of is, yeah. And that so, was the first one they did with the orchestra. Can you imagine? But Thomas, uh, you know, has said in interviews that the moment that he was sat there listening to that, to them record that, to the orchestra performing and recording that song, he was like, "Oh, this is fucking great. This is going to work." <laughs> Absolutely. And um, one thing I wanted to add from a couple of interviews, because it ties right into this particular piece, is a guy by the name of Pip Williams does the choir and orchestral arrangements for Nightwish. And there was a couple interviews that kind of spoke to this. There was a 2004 interview with Thomas that I found where he was asked, did you prepare the music for the orchestra or has Pip helped with the arrangement of that? And he said, I had a lot of ideas and we made a demo recording where I played the keyboards, the choirs and everything. I wanted it to be like this, but I, I talked to Pip and said, you know, you have a free hand to do whatever you want. And he has done an amazing job with the arrangements. Uh, a lot of new ideas. Uh, he said, I don't understand anything about notes. So he's written all the notes and everything. He has a very strong part in this album. He's a great guy. And then I found a 2015 album by a site called uh, Metal Temple where, uh, nope, that wasn't the one. It was a 2015 album by uh, Kenta Press and Agency where they interviewed Pip Williams. And um, the interview said, there could be some fans out there who might not know who Pip Williams is and how he is related to Nightwish. Can you please tell us what your role has been within the band for the past few years? And he said, I've been a successful record producer. And he listed Status Quo, the Moody Blues, uh, he said, an arranger for many years. My role with Nightwish is that of orchestral arranger and coordinator. I transcribe uh, Thomas's, Thomas's ideas uh, for the orchestra and choir and organize the London sessions, carefully liaising with him, the orchestral coordinator, the studio, the conductor, 
and the music copyist slash librarian. While I transcribe uh, Thomas's parts for the arrangements, I have freedom to adapt and add my own ideas to the scores. I can make suggestions regarding the lineup and suggest possible changes. Cool. Well, that's that's good that they get that they're willing to trust you know somebody who isn't technically in the band with that much uh, you know sort of freedom and responsibility. That's yeah, similar, and that's a 2015 similar, interview, so you could tell that partnership's been going on for a while. For a while, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it sounds similar, actually, to um, how Tony Banks, the keyboardist from Genesis, I think I mentioned before, now writes classical albums or orchestral albums. He, he doesn't like to call them classical, but, you know. Um, but he does the same thing, where he will record demos using synthesizers and keyboards and then gives them to an arranger that he works with who then figures out how to, you know, make an orchestra play that. So it's interesting that there's a similar taking that kind of rock keyboardist to playing uh, to an orchestra playing stuff, you know, similar kind of pipeline. I love that type of collaboration too, because it's this sort of idea of you have a creative vision for this thing that you want to do, but you also know that there's someone with expertise to really bring that vision to life the way that you want to. And I've worked with, uh, in some of the, uh, collaborative and creative work that I've done. Like my friend is a designer and there's times where, you know, I'm, I'm basically uh, the equivalent of like sketching something on a napkin, right. And being like, this is the thing that this is kind of where I want to go with this. And then of course, hand it to him. And what comes back is 10,000, you know, degrees better than anything that I could ever possibly create. Um, Yeah. And, and uh, those types of relationships are awesome. Pip Williams. The name did ring a bell, but I couldn't place it. Uh, and then you mentioned like status quo in the Moody Blues, so I just looked him up. Uh, and yes, th- that will be why his name rang a bell. Uh, this probably only means anything to the Brits, uh, but he produced Status Quo's album "Rocking All Over the World," which is you know if you're into that sort of like you know English rock, that's a classic album. You know everybody knows that one. He also apparently did the string arrangements on Carl Douglas's "Kung Fu Fighting." <laughs> Now, there's one that. for your resume. <laughs> you know, well, let's face it, one of the most famous bloody songs in the world. It definitely um, is. Wow. So, yeah, it's, uh, as I say, that it wasn't the first time they'd worked with an orchestra, but it was the first time that they'd done a whole album with an orchestra. And I think it shows. And I think it shows in the songwriting as well, again, without getting into individual tracks, because we'll talk about those in a moment. But the whole album does have a feel of this was written with a classical orchestra in mind. You know, this was the music here was written partly to be played by an orchestra. It's not just synth music that's then been yes. translated. Um, and I think that really shows through in this album. And maybe that's as a result of them deciding, okay, it's time to kind of take the next step, if you like, and yeah, do a whole album with an orchestra. And I think what really shines through is the way that both the sort of choir elements and the orchestra elements are applied in different songs is Mm. very diverse. And so it it goes to your point earlier, right? Of like, this isn't a situation of sort of adding these elements afterwards as, you know, small accents. It's essentially each, each track being its own approach to, well, how do we want to use those elements to, tell the story that we're trying to tell in this particular song. And I think yeah. that shines through. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and it resulted, as I said, in like, you know, it, this was, uh, the album was immediately their best-selling album. It's not like it's become their best-selling album 
over many years or something. It was immediately their most successful album. And yes, still is their best selling over 2 million copies uh, of this album, which none of their other ones, I won't say none of those others have come close to, but certainly none of their others have matched. Um, uh, Because yeah. And so this is, as a result, this is much like, you know, say the black album for Metallica or draconian times for paradise lost or whatever. This is the album that most people who aren't ardent fans associate with the band. Uh, I did have one other interview excerpt. This was from a Metal Temple interview around the time that the album came out. Um, Taria was asked about how her voice, her vocal approach is different in this album. Um, the person asked, uh, in once you're using a much softer voice in like less operatic, considering, you know, your area of expertise is operatic vocals. Did you feel, was this uncomfortable? Um, and she said, I feel very comfortable with once because I have tried to change my singing style with Nightwish already since Century Child because Thomas requested um, that and the songs requested that. It's also easier for more people to listen to this kind of voice. It has been hard work and I didn't manage to do that on Century Child. I was not very happy with it. But once it's all very natural I'm singing what I'm singing, but as I said, it has been really hard work because I've been a classical singer for the last 10 years, so it was hard to start over again and think of different styles. Uh, She said, I'm always singing with my classical techniques, um, so now I'm very comfortable with what Thomas has done because he was able to write for my voice. It was also a lesson for him as much as it was for me. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to bear in mind as well with the with this band and with this album. I mean, like, yeah, fifth album, so clearly, you know, they'd been doing things a while for by this point. But Taria was never intending to be a metal singer. Uh, you know, she was on course to be you know, some kind of opera singer or something. She's classically trained. She was going to have a career as a classical singer uh, and then got recruited to Nightwish and, you know, the rest is history. But yeah, she was, and she freely said in interviews uh, when she was with Nightwish, you know, that she's not a metalhead in the same way that everybody else in the band is. Um, And she was, she saw her job as interpreting what Thomas gave her, uh, you know, to sing in her style. But yeah, she was never kind of, she never intended, I don't think, to uh, get involved in things like writing the lyrics and stuff because it wasn't her. It wasn't her genre of music, which right. is kind, of, you know, considering how completely and definitively she is associated with this type of music now, is kind of a weird thing to find out. But it, yeah, she said it all along was like, yeah, not in a disparaging way, just kind of like, this is not my world. You know, I love doing this. I'm very happy doing it, but I don't come from that background. So, uh, yeah, you know, but that's also what made them unique. I'm sure was her, her approach to the vocals, her style of vocals was at the time, like nothing anybody had heard before in a metal band. Um, you know, even, uh, Amy from Evanescence, you know, has a, a wonderfully strong, powerful voice, but she doesn't sound like an opera singer. You know, right. whereas Taria does literally sound like she's just walked off of doing the Ring of the Nibelung or something. You know, she's yeah. uh, genuinely operatic. And as I say, now that's a bit more common, but at the time it was absolutely unique. Well, and it makes me want to dig into their earlier stuff because this is now my frame of reference. 
Right. So right, I don't right. I, I haven't heard that evolution or or change in vocal approach because this is the this is the most I've heard from them. Yeah. Um so I definitely want to kind of dig back into the back catalog a bit. All right. Well before you do then, let's dig into this album. <laughs> yes. Nice segue. Yes. That perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's start with obviously the album opener, track one, Dark Chest of Wonders. Um, what I would say about this is it, it it was the it was the pleasant surprise that I wasn't anticipating, which is I kind of mentioned this at the beginning of the episode. But um, my issue, my challenge with a, a lot of um, symphonic metal is it's too symphonic and not enough metal. Yeah. And what is awesome about this song is it basically announces from the get go. No, we we've got a a great balance here. And there's no, th- these songs are not going to lack punch because that initial riff and just, I also notice initially like how thick the bass is on this album mm. and just how like resonant the bass is on this album. Then you're, you know, you've got whammy bars, you've got like it pick slides, you've got all like it. This is that grand intro of like, here's, a little bit of everything that you can expect on this album and it has that punch and i really that immediately grabbed my attention as like oh okay i mean i i think coming in i was just expecting that i would have a similar reaction to a lot of um like the symphonic stuff that i listen to which is just that it's it's good and it's awesome but it's just not like metal enough for me. And it's, this one was yeah. like, nope, uh, it is definitely going to satisfy that component as well. Right. Yeah. Not hard edged enough. Um, right. I mean, it, you're absolutely right that this, uh, and again, something that we've talked about many times on this show, it, it does contain kind of a bit of everything that you're going to get in the rest of the album. Well, almost everything, um, which is good for an opener, you know, sort of uh, a good way to do it. It's, what I like about this is the the energy. Yeah. Um, it's got that sort of the bombast of a great dramatic classical piece. It's not pastoral at all. You know, this is not uh, air on a G-string or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, it, but it's also, I mean, it's not quite, it's not a punch in the face. You know, it's not mouth for war. Um, but it is, it does have energy. It does have speed. It's a good it slap in the face. That. <laughs> yeah. well, maybe not well, a punch but well and, and like i say you know something like math well, that's not the symphonic metal style obviously, no 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 but it does have that energy and that slightly hard edge 
uh, to the guitars, especially that does kind of get you going, which I think, yeah, is what, as you say, provides that balance. Um, and I think for me, knowing there is a real orchestra underneath this, that what you're listening to is not just keyboards, but that yep. those are real violins and real horns and real timpani and what have you, I think really adds to the experience. And that's, I mean, that's really psychosomatic, you know, but, I knew that there was an orchestra playing on this yeah. album from the first time I heard it. And I think that really does kind of help pin your ears back, if you like, and go, whoa, you know, because you can just imagine. I mean, you have to wonder what orchestras these days think of this trend for metal bands. <laughs> it's because it's become a thing, you know. Um, I, the psychosomatic thing, you, I think you really hit on something there because you were – what music like this does, like I think those classical influences especially, is it, for me, in my mind, it invokes a stage play. And it invokes right. this sense of energy. And and also, you're picturing in your head the orchestra and what they're doing in the song. And it's very physical. Yeah. Right? It's very physical. And like there's that segment around uh, three and a half minutes in where there it feels like there's this climactic back and forth battle you know, kind of happening. And in a lot of these songs, there is that sort of element of almost like pursuit or a lot of elements that are building up to something. And it's just, you can picture in your head what it looks like when the orchestra is playing something like that. And so it does add this layer of physicality in a way that I think the, you know, hardest of metal songs have that gut yeah. feel, you know, physicality. And, um, and I do think, uh, I do think you can feel that. And when you, when you feel that it's it is an actual orchestra playing this stuff that this is there's a level of authenticity to it that really i just feel like you can you can feel it yeah you know, i want to call out something you said there which is a feeling of pursuit there are i'm i hadn't quite i would never have articulated it that way but you are 100% right there are several parts in the orchestral sections i mean specifically in the arrangements throughout this album that have exactly that kind of energy and feel to them, that kind of driving, as you say, it feels like a pursuit. It's almost like a chase scene or something. Um, I hadn't thought to put it in those words, but you're absolutely right. And it's, yes, it's one of the things that I do like about a lot of the songs on this album is that real feeling of momentum throughout the orchestral bits. Again, it's not pastoral. It's not just a bed right. of violins that's kind of, you know, adding a layer of ambiance or something. They are part of the song. They are, you know, going back and forth with the guitars and the drums. Uh, and the thing in- about that is like when you're watching a stage play, so much is on the orchestra to really hammer home those feelings because you you only have so much real estate to work with right i mean think of what a pursuit looks like on a stage it's running from one side to the other right and so (laughs) it is and you only have so much ground to cover right so so the music has to sell it and uh when you have a band like this who is kind of painting a picture with the their storytelling and and um is incorporating a lot of emotion into what they're doing like just having those orchestral elements that are driving home feelings that you're supposed to have when you're listening to these songs like it really it just adds this other layer to it totally on the other hand we also have a mid-2000s breakdown right in the middle of this song which is so so very (laughs) mid-2000s that even now it still makes me smile i just think oh yeah 
Yeah, everybody had to do those back then, didn't they? Um, I mean, it's a good one. I like it as breakdowns go, and it shows off Taria's vocals. But uh, yeah, it, listening to it now, I mean, you know, I do listen to this album fairly regularly, but listening to it in the context of preparing for this episode and making notes and sort of analysing things a bit more, uh, yeah, when I heard that in the context, you know, sort of from 2022, I was like, ah, oh, bless them. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's a, th- there's always going to be those kind of nods to the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can't avoid it. Um, so yeah, great opener. Great um, opener. Agree 100%. Followed, and then followed by one of the singles from this album, track two, Wish I Had an Angel. just an awesome one-two punch here this is uh this is a fantastic song from start to i mean this song is metal this could be like the background to a super nintendo castlevania uh (laughs) you you know sort of uh boss fight or something like that like just it's super up tempo the melodies are amazing uh when you when you have the vocals when when taria's sort of just singing in the background of the chorus, mm-hmm. giving you that sort of up and down soaring, you know, guiding you through the chorus is just, it's just so good. Like it's so good. And then it is heavy and it does have the, you know, the chugs that you got a great pick slide into the chugs at 30 seconds into the album, like uh great bass in this album too. Like it's, everything is like, it's a well-oiled machine here. But yeah, it's got those beautiful melodic components as well. I, I think this is their best known track. Like if you asked most people to sort of, you know, name a, a Nightwish track or hum a Nightwish track or something, I'm pretty sure this is what you'd get from most uh, people out there. Um which and which I like because I mean again you know Nightwish has never they're not the sort of band that's about melting your face with <laughs> killer riffs you know that's not their thing but I do think it's kind of heartening that their most famous track is a real rocker yeah. you know because how easy would it be for a band like this where their most famous song is you know say track ten from this album which is just Taria and the orchestra. Um, you know, it would be very easy for that to be their most famous song and then everybody else to go to listen to this and go, well, this isn't what I expected at all. Um, but instead, their most famous song is actually representative of the band. Uh, 
yeah, because that doesn't always happen. And it is a great riff. It's a really good, solid metal riff. Marco's male vocals, uh, you know, are prominent in this one. Um, great chorus. and it, But it also has, there's that lovely, I mean, the orchestra obviously is throughout this song, it's throughout most of the album, but it has uh, at the point where they sing Wanna Be Friend in the middle eight, there is this blast of a discordant chord from the orchestra. Yeah, uh, and that is the sort of thing that you do expect from a classical piece, but it doesn't dominate the whole thing. It just kind of supports the song, um, which I think just speaks to again, you know, sort of how well the classical elements, the orchestral elements, are integrated into the songs on this album. Because that again, it could easily have dominated. They could have gone too far, but instead, it's just there, just enough to sort of jolt you out of your seat but not so much that it overtakes the whole song. Um, also, it, have you seen the, the the video to this one? It's the one where I think they're singing in the snow in front of a cemetery or something, which admittedly um, doesn't narrow it down much. <laughs> I was just going to say, maybe. <laughs> it's uh, Finland. I don't I mean, know. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't specifically look it up for this episode, but what I, I like, I love the vibe of this song as it contrasts to the first song. The first song to yes, me feels yes. very sort of, uh, soaring and open. And in this song, when Marco's singing and Taria's, uh, you know, just kind of singing over his chorus, her melody is kind of twisting and turning, right? And it feels very, t- like this song feels like tight, whereas the first song felt very open. And that's what I kind of like about this is, is there's, this one feels like it has more twists and turns to it. Like it's a, it, it has a sense of urgency to it. Whereas the first one, that I feel like they're kind of painting with this broad brush like they're and just I just love how it goes from both songs like have great heavy elements to them but this one is like locked in it's much more of a straight rocker isn't it yeah yeah but her uh, what what Taria is doing during the chorus to me just takes this song from like good to great right yeah it's just it's just such it's so great also, one of the best couplets in uh, in this style of music, I think, that there is, which is those lines, I'm in love with my lust, burning angel wings to dust. Yeah. What a great couplet yeah. that is. I mean, the lyrics, I have no idea what this song's about. The lyrics don't make an awful lot of sense to me, but there are those little moments that, uh, How again, about- you know. Uh, old loves they die hard, old lies they die harder. Yeah, see, that, I mean, it's okay, but that's a bit, it's almost like that's not cheesy enough. <laughs> Whereas, it, didn't, it didn't die. It's only like a seven on the cheese scale for you. Yeah, I think so. Whereas like burning angel wings to dust is that's so true. far that takes it to off another the level. scale. <laughs> yeah. That it kind of, it loops all the way back around yeah. and becomes good again. Yeah. Now um, we're in a Castlevania boss level when you reach that right, level right. of lyric. Absolutely. And I, do, I do wonder how much of that we've talked about this before, how much of that is because of, and you know, I've seen Thomas interviewed. His English is excellent, but not a native English speaker. Uh, to be fair, I know a few Finns and they're, they're English. They all speak English excellently, but it's still not the same as being a native speaker. Um, and, you know, we've said that before about the the glorious, um, you know, mangled English that you sometimes get from Euro metal. Now, this isn't mangled, but it does make me think, would a native English speaker ever have written that line? I don't think so, uh, yeah. because you don't burn things to dust, you burn them to ash. But it's a great line. What a great symbol. 
Yeah. Or um, not symbol, what's the word? Image, image. What great imagery. Um, well, okay, so on to track three, which was another single from the album, and that's Nemo. You said that uh, one of the points you made about the second track was that, you know, it was much simpler, um, more sort of locked in than the first track. This track is even simpler, I think. And it's, I think that kind of, I, I like this track a lot, but I think its simplicity actually works against it a little bit because yeah. it's so catchy. Like, it, and it's a really good song, but it's so catchy that it lacks a bit of depth. Uh, and it's easy to tire of it after a while. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I do, and it also, to me, falls into that more, more, uh, more symphonic than metal. Uh, you know, sort of compared to the first two songs. Like it, it does, it just doesn't have the edge. On the vocal side, I I like that this song has a very sort of dreamy feel to it. It's a it's mm-hmm. a more contemplative sort of reflective vibe on this song and the the taria's vocals here are very sort of dreamlike and i do really like that i also think is this the first of the three songs that features kind of like a traditional guitar solo Um, i think it is yes Yes. yeah and and that and it's a short one i think uh, at around two and a half minutes in but that kind of jumped out at me as like oh i didn't i guess i wasn't expecting that um, and there's a few songs that have them uh, on this album, but it, it just stuck out to me. Um, yeah, it's I fun. don't, I don't feel like this is a letdown from the first two. I, I feel like it's a different, we've sort of gotten three different flavors on the first three songs. And, and at this point of the album, like I'm still locked in and I, right, I, sure. I, I don't feel like this song's a letdown at all. It's just, it's just a little bit more dreamy than, especially the second song, which I felt was really kind of, uh, locked in and had this tight, uh, urgent feel to it it's funny that you mentioned the the solo actually because the the middle eight has a kind of string swell which like at the start of it which i think works really well but it only lasts a few bars before we then go into the solo and i i wonder if this song might feel like it has more depth if that orchestral section went on longer maybe even in place of the solo um I mean, you know, I'm not necessarily looking for a full-on Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner <laughs> section or something, but just, you know, more of the orchestra doing something unusual in that space. 
Yeah. But, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, like go for it. But as I said, it, it's so I'll, I'll talk about it in the context of the next song as well. It is a great song. This no question. It is so catchy. But as I say, I do think sometimes that that and its simplicity works against it because you tire of it easily. Do you well, know what I mean? It, it's I, I it's do. so simple that you love it and you listen to it again and again, and then you're like, oh, actually, there's nothing more to it. And the thing is, too, when you start out with two songs like we've gotten on this album already, you've set the bar, you've set expectations in a certain place, true, right? True. And so that's, I guess that you, we could have a whole conversation, right? About like, you know, we talk a lot about opening songs, but even like the first two to three songs, like what is the expectation that that sets and does the rest of the album sort of live up to it sort of thing? Um, first couple songs on this album are outstanding. So mm. you really got to, how do you keep that? How do you keep it at that level? You know, how do you maintain and, that momentum? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the other, the only other thing I'll say about this song is that the way it, well, all of it, the whole song really, but especially the opening with the piano playing the, you know, the chorus melody and then the guitars like, you know, smashing in underneath that to me is pure paradise lost. Mm. like there's i hear that and i'm like oh oh you've heard a few paradise lost records in your time haven't you <laughs> um like and the whole song actually sounds very you know, like i could easily imagine nick holmes singing this song but that intro especially i remember the first time i heard it uh it's say in the mid 2000s when paradise lost were in that phase as well they were doing not symphonic per se but they'd gone away from the sort of really hard metal stuff and were doing much kind of you know light affair um with the some of the wrist fulber produced albums and i remember hearing this and going like oh wow wow <laughs> spot the influence you know yeah um but okay let's like i said there is context i think between that this song and the next one though so let's move on to track four which is planet hell I feel like this puts us back into the heavier sort of groove. I what I like about the song is the the orchestral uh, sort of build up and then the metal kind of kicks in. There's there's this dramatic to go back to what you were kind of talking about earlier, a very very dramatic feel to this um in the way it kind of builds to a reveal and I I really like that. Again, I feel like the the drums are doing a lot of great work here and there's some great horns in the song too. Um, but I do like that dramatic sort of build up feel to it. And then there's a part, um, towards the latter part of the song where it almost feels like you're, there's like a house of horrors feel to, you know, it's a much more kind of, um, 
That's chaotic. the keyboard solo, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a much more chaotic sort of feel here, but it starts out with sort of drama and build up. It is really dramatic. Uh, and yeah, absolutely feel that. So th- the reason that I kind of pair this discussion of this with the last song is that this one actually took quite a while to grow on me. When I oh. first heard the album, I felt like things dropped off after the first three tracks. Um, but over time, this one especially really grew on me to the point where it's now one of my favorite tracks on the album. Um, and I think that, so this is my sort of, it's not really a grand theory, but I think you need to have both both types of tracks on an album for it to be re-listenable, for it to be something that lasts um, and endures, because you need the catchy songs. Of course you do. You know, you need your singles and you need sure. people. You need a song that people can latch onto and start humming along to immediately. Um, but you also, because you will tire of those songs because they're so catchy and simple. You also need the more complex songs that take a while to get into, um, that reward re-listening. And I think this is one of those tracks. So following, and maybe it wasn't deliberate, maybe it's subconscious, but following, uh, Nemo with this track, I think really works because like I say, this one just took a while, took a few re-listens for me to get into, but now I love it. The atmosphere is, it's it's kind of relentless. Yeah. It's got that feel where it, it feels like the whole song is building throughout. Like every verse feels more urgent than the last. Yep. And all the upward chord changes between the verse and the chorus kind of reinforce that like, you know, we're building, we're building, we're building. Um, and then you get the choir stabs in the chorus, which is really, you know, we, we've used the word bombastic a few times, but that's really bombastic. Those are, it is so, and the keyboard solo is kind of a little bit cheesy but it's okay. It kind of, it just about works. Um, I think it works. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, I definitely feel like it works. And it, it's funny you mentioned of like how this compares to the song before it. Like I remember distinctly thinking like up to this point in the album, like I really like how this is laid out so far. Like I like the song choices Yeah, from an order standpoint that we're doing so far. Like they're all... To me, they all kind of hang together, but they all are offering you something different. And I like how coming off of the last song, we sort of lock back into the groove on this song. I just, I, I like the pace of it so far. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as I say, I don't know whether I don't know how much I assume Thomas seems a very thoughtful man. I'm sure you know there probably was thought put into the order. Um, whether it was the same thoughts that we're having now, who can say? But yeah, it's uh, it, as an order of tracks, it works very, very well indeed. Um, well, and I mentioned that because I don't think that's the same for the entire album, and we can talk about. Uh, but I feel like through the first four here, we're we're on a we're on a roll. No, no, I don't necessarily disagree. Actually, so uh, that's going to be yeah. Okay, we'll we'll get into that. That's going to be interesting to talk about. So, um, but yeah, as I say, this track. It may not grab you at first, but it does absolutely reward repeated listening. Um, so, yeah, you know, go back and, and give it another go. Uh, and then on to track five, which is Creek Mary's Blood.
which I feel like offers something very different than what we've very different, yeah, gotten so far. And if I'm not mistaken, this is eight and a half minutes long. Correct. It's the second longest song on the album. Yeah, yeah. So to get you know, for, let's see, it was four and a half minutes, four and a half minute. So three of the first four songs are four and a half minutes. Song number two is four minutes. So we're all in kind of the same wheelhouse and then double that on (laughs) track five. And this was kind of the first time I was like, oh, okay. Um, This, we've now kind of gone in a different direction here. Um, Not that it's a bad song at all. This song is based on a 1980 book by D. Brown of the same name as the song Creek Mary's Blood. Um, And features John Tuhawks contributing to this song and is telling the story of this book yeah which is i'll just read you the the description of the book it says um in creek mary's blood d brown fictionalizes the astonishing true story of mary musgrove born in 1700 to a creek tribal chief and five generations of her family by tracing her struggles with colonists in georgia and then the lives of her two sons one born to a white trader and the other to a cherokee warrior Brown's novel creates a gripping panorama of the American Indian experience in the 18th and 19th centuries. His narrative spans colonial rebellion, the Trail of Tears, and the Civil War, in which Mary's descendants fought on both sides of the conflict. So that's the book that inspires this song. Yeah, right. And you can see references to that in the lyrics. I So that's funny that you say that there was controversy because I didn't know that, but I have always wondered, like one of my, the first notes I made about this song was like, could you do this now? I'm not sure if you could. Like, I think their intentions were good, but I'm not sure that you could, you know, that a very, very white European band could record this now without controversy. So all of that acknowledged. It's a decent song. It's not my favorite on the album. Um, it's, you know, you can kind of see what they were going for. And I do like that it is arranged again with classical influence. Like there are several different movements throughout it. Uh, and it is clearly for, for the first half of the album, clearly meant to be a kind of centerpiece and the capper to the first five tracks on the album. Um, but like I say, it's okay, but it doesn't, I don't, think it's as powerful as they wanted it to be unfortunately i mean my biggest thing is the choice to have it be eight and a half minutes long well that's Um, part of it yeah yeah. i mean we've talked about this before i i struggle with with these really you less so because you're a big doom fan and you know like these uh super long songs but i i don't i get lost a, a lot of times when when songs have it so i i just felt like it was it was too long as compared to the songs that came before it, and even the songs that come immediately after it, it's just yeah, it, it's a big departure in the middle of the album. Well, and it feels like they didn't build to that departure. I think that's maybe the problem. Like, there's nothing to suggest that it's coming. <laughs> there's no kind of, I don't know, you know, maybe a thirty-second acoustic guitar instrumental break or something might have at least set you up for it. You know, um, well, and I also feel like the the sort of s- imagery and subject matter that we're conjuring up to this point is very fantastical. Yes, and then we're this is this is extremely serious subject matter, right? And right. you're trying to, even though the the book is a fictionalization of a certain event, it is referring to very real and very traumatic events that happened in the history of uh, of you know, America. Right. And so, uh, 
absolutely a, not sort of gothic romance that the okay, first yes, few it's a very been, big yeah. tone change too right and um but again they're they're trying to do this story justice and they're trying to represent it as authentically as they can and so um this to me feels like a song that you put that you build to over the course of an album and you but it doesn't feel like the number five song to me yeah and Maybe that's they where i kind of with uh, ghost love song well the problem is when you have two songs <laughs> on your album <laughs> that are that and i think the, i mean we could talk about that when we get to it but yeah, yeah. let's assume let's assume that you have one song of this length on your oh album. sure well then it goes on the back half yeah. correct yes and so once you have more than one song of this length you you've now i i i feel like you've You've created a challenge for yourself. <laughs> painted yourself into a corner. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. In, in, especially when that is not the average length of most of the songs on this album. And so I do feel like you're, you know, if you're hovering around four and a half minutes for most of your songs, then your eight and a half minute or your 10 minute song, you get one of those. Yeah. And well, so. And, and especially when it's so unlike all the other songs in the album, I think that's the issue. Like, you know, you could, if this sounded like the rest of the album did, then you could stick it at the start. Why not open with it? You know, set out your stall and start with a really long opening track. Plenty of albums do. Uh, I mean, yes, you know. You Agreed. And I, especially. I, li I like long songs because of my Doom fandom, but also, <laughs> yeah. again, because of the prog rock thing. You know, like a lot of prog bands, a lot of prog albums would do that sort of thing and they would start their albums with a, you know, 10 minute, 12 minute song. But it sounded like their other songs as well, whereas this just doesn't. Well, and to me, like the the idea of like telling different stories over the course of the album, I'm totally down for that sort of anthology feel for an album. But to your point, I think you maybe this is song two, right? If your if your first song is sort of this introduction of we're, we're we're going to tell different stories throughout the course of this album, then you kind of introduce that concept from a story standpoint with song one. And then everything that comes after song one is a different story to be told, right? So right. thematically, I also kind of, um, th this feels like a departure at song five for me. I feel like, to your point, like you you either put this right up front because we're telling different stories here, or you put this towards the end because we're building to this story. Yeah. it's uh, And like I say, it's not that it's a bad song, but it, it's just, it is weird placement for it, and it doesn't sound like anything else on the album. Uh and not necessarily in the best way, which is a shame uh, for something that lasts eight minutes. <laughs> um, but let's move on then to track six, The Siren. This is another, like, much like we saw with, um, I think it was Song 4, with Planet Hell, you sort of go from a, 
uh, a larger um, song into get getting back into the groove, right? And so this yeah. song is is, is another sort of ground. Yep, guitar driven chugs. You know, starts slow with a great bass line, and there's some awesome choir like flirt elements here um, that sort of augment Taria's lines when she's singing the, the chorus is kind of in the background, like adding a little accents to, to um, you know, what she's singing there. This song uh, came up in an interview where Thomas said that uh, he was inspired by the Disney movie Sinbad. That's what <laughs> is the inspiration for this song. I have read interviews with him where he's like professed to being a lover of Disney stuff. Now, you, partly you have to understand, and I know, so Donald Duck is huge in Finland. And I mean like huge, like a cultural icon, the equivalent of Mickey Mouse in America um, because of a weird freak of, you know, sort of publishing timing and what have you, uh, you know, historical stuff. But yeah, so Donald Duck's huge. He is, and he's been sort of, you know, he jokes about that. Uh, in interviews and he's said that he's an enormous Disney fan which is not at all really what you expect from somebody who makes this kind of music so I'm so not I want surprised to read you what by that as you might this. think go on he said to the interviewer there's a scene of about five minutes where the sirens come and tempt Sinbad and it has awesome music behind it and I said I want to make a song about this about sirens sirens tempting the <laughs> listener that's the whole idea of the song yeah, so that's that's where the inspiration of the song came from. Also, the only song on the album to feature a violin solo. Uh, yes, which, which is a bit weird, given that the band doesn't have a violinist, but they they found a you know lead violin player, and there's a violin solo in it. So you know, I, I I've sometimes wondered if maybe that decision was made after they decided they were going to use an orchestra f- throughout this album, and Thomas just uh-huh. thought, fuck it, you know. <laughs> it's uh yeah i mean it's not a bad choice it's just really unexpected because you're like hang on a minute where did the violin solo come from um but yeah this is much more familiar well and, and the the strings also uh, accompany like the choir yes it, as they're sort of adding those flourishes to when tari is singing the the main verse lines it's really uh there's a lot of great elements that work well together in this song well uh, and it's so this is another song that doesn't sound like anything else on the album. It is quite unusual in that sense, but unlike what we just said about Creek Mary's Blood, I think it works because partly because it's shorter, much shorter and more sort of compact, but also because it's still using elements that are present in other tracks on the album, just using them in ways that you don't find anywhere else. Um, but it is a good track. It, it's, you know, I don't think it's the most memorable track on the album, but like I said, it's much more familiar ground after track five, certainly. So it, uh, you know, it feels like coming back down to earth. Yeah. And it, what is it? Four minutes and 45 seconds long. So we're yeah. right back to that, you know, that same, right, that, that sort of average length, general yeah. amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then that is followed by track seven, dead gardens.
this is another sort of dramatic buildup, and then it kicks in with the sort of galloping, menacing riff. It's got a great groove to it. So I feel like we've kind of settled into a couple songs back to back here that um, are sort of in the same wheelhouse. Yeah, I mean, I don't like this as much as the siren. I think this is. I mean, it does take half a minute to get going. It's got a great riff once it kicks in, but I just kind of wish they did more with it. Like, I yeah. like the riff and the drums as well. And Tario wow. does get to sort of do some vocal gymnastics, but the whole of this song just doesn't quite come together. I mean, you're not bad, you know, but uh, if I'm listening to this album in the background, if I've got this album on while I'm doing something else, this is the track where I start to lose focus and the album just oh, kind of okay. becomes wallpaper for me, you know? I kind of got a little bit obsessed with this song because this is around the time that I had read that they are influenced by uh, Lord of the Rings and Dragonlance. So right. I then thought that I heard something in this song that made me think of one of the Dragonlance novels. So I started, it turned out that it wasn't, but like oh, I, I was the, like researching. The Elven Path reference by any chance? The Elven Path reference because I kept thinking of um, Lorax Nightmare, this whole, just because of the, like the subject matter of the song. Like I was, I was thinking of this uh, Dragonlance thing about Lorax Nightmare and, and um, so I started doing a bunch of, I went down the rabbit hole around it. Turns out that's not. Uh, what it was. I think that the Dragonlance reference was on a previous album. And so, um, but I did end up spending more time with this song because I was trying to figure it out <laughs> and see if they were talking about Dragonlance. So, yeah. Well, in, in a way they were, because what it is that I know the bit that you're talking about, it's towards the end where he sings, where are the wolves? Or not he, sure, she sings, where are the wolves, the underwater moon, the elven path, the haven of youth, lagoons of the starlit sea. Those are all references to their previous albums. Because ah, okay. this song is about writer's block. Oh, okay. Thomas has said that he wrote this about like a period he was going through where he just couldn't seem to write new songs. He was at, he had a really bad case of writer's block, and that's what this song is about. So yeah, that verse is so the Elven Path thing is a Dragon Lance reference, but in this song, it's a reference to a previous dra- <laughs> Dragon Lance reference that they made. Um, okay, so you weren't a hundred percent you know, off. <laughs> yeah. Well, in any case, I ended up listening to this song uh, more than some of the others because I was trying to figure <laughs> it out and, uh, and look through the lyrics there. But, uh, but yeah, I like, I, I feel like it's a good, uh, it's a good follow to the song before it. So I felt like, um, you know, after the siren, I felt like this was another good one. Yeah. I mean, like I say, it's, it's not a bad song. I don't dislike it. It just, I really have to, if I want to listen to that song, I do have to literally sit down and make myself listen to it. Because if I'm just listening in the background, it just kind of, my attention wanders. Um, which obviously is not the case for something like say Nemo or, um, wish I had an angel, you know, because those are so arresting, those grab your attention. Whereas, uh, this dead gardens doesn't really grab it for me, unfortunately. Um, So I'll be interested to hear what you think then of track eight, which is Romanticide.
My final note on this song was this should have been the closer. This should have been oh, the last song on the album. Um, maybe not the la- maybe not cutting the album to eight songs, but I felt like this could have been the closer mm. to the album. Uh, I feel like it might be the heaviest song on the album. Um, it, it is heavy, yeah, yeah. It feels like there's there's like the drums are almost thrashy, and you get you know the Zach Wilde esque uh, guitars on this one. Um, the bass is like. I just made a note around two minutes. Like the bass is just so thick on this one. It sounds awesome. Um, we also get a traditional guitar solo here and it's longer than the previous one that we uh, talked about in one of the earlier songs there. Um, yeah, I just felt, I felt like it almost enters into Halloween territory at, at some points on this <laughs> song. So I, I feel like it, it's going back to the first song in the album. I felt like it had a little bit of everything and also, had some of the most heavy elements on the album. Okay. So that's interesting that you said it feels like it's got a bit of everything because that's one of my criticisms of this song. Like again, this kind of, again, you're talking about sort of attention slipping. If that's the case, this song does not bring me back. I have listened to this album (laughs) several times where I've just been completely unaware of, uh, dead guns and romanticide happening. Um, it is heavy. You're right. It's, it's a really heavy track. It's got a big bombastic chorus and it's got choral stabs everywhere and a middle breakdown, but there's something about it that just doesn't do a lot for me. Uh, and I think part of that is because, to what you were saying earlier, it feels like there's nothing here that you can't, fi- can't find elsewhere on the album mm. in better constructed songs. Okay. I think that's I th- valid. I think that's my problem with it is that like it's there's nothing here that I haven't heard already in other songs on the album uh, and in catchier songs to be honest. Yeah, I mean they've got like the spoken passages that are that are very sort of stage play, you know, like here it does it does try to do a lot of different things within the 5 minute runtime of the song. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, maybe one day it'll click because again, it's not a bad song and when I make myself listen to it I'm like, "Oh yeah, this is all right," you know. But it just it it never grabs my attention uh, if I'm not actively listening to it, which is a shame. One track that does grab my attention, though, the track that sort of if I have lost my focus on this album always brings me back is track nine, the longest song on the album, uh, the epic that is Ghost Love Score.
And this is where I bid you adieu. Uh, <laughs> this is this is the metal argument right here. Uh, this is the part of the show where we disagree. This is where they lose me. Ten minutes, like that's it's just uh, okay. So that's that's really interesting because I would say I would have thought one of the things that I like about this track is that to me it doesn't feel like it's ten minutes long because mm. it has all these multiple movements within it. And I would have thought that knowing your love of the track Halloween, uh, that it would fall under that kind of, you know, cause that obviously benefits from having all those different movements in it as well. Um, so I thought that would keep your attention. Halloween is the only band to ever do that. And they did it twice. They did it with Halloween and they did it with a song on their newest album. And I okay. can't remember the name of it now as I think about it, but I'll post it in the, the Facebook group, but they have a super long, um, song that i think justifies its ridiculous runtime skyfall skyfall thank you that is the song that so halloween only band to ever write uh 10 minute or more two songs 10 plus minute songs that you like <laughs> the only two the yeah. literally the only two 10 plus minute songs that i like uh but for ghost love score i'll read you my notes straight through um my first note is this song is an album in itself uh i wrote horns are strong in this one very orchestral like a stage play Opens and starts slow after a very dramatic build. Um, the choir is amazing in this song. Uh, I had another note that said sprawling story slash adventure. I I'm, think I'm referring to like just the kind of st- storytelling emotion that it kind of puts you there. But then um, I I wrote, does not justify its runtime. And then I wrote, I refer you to Halloween um, <laughs> in that. And so, and, and I said, uh, breaks the flow of the album at this spot at the number nine spot right and again so that's the one that's where i will agree with you i think that this is in the wrong place on the album this if i was ordering this album this would have been around about track five or six this would be literally the centerpiece of the album um so that you can then close out with you know a succession of shorter tracks um but obviously i like it a lot more than you um i think of this in some ways as almost a proto symphonic metal song like you know of mm. course they'd already recorded several albums the genre was already around by this point but because this album was so successful so many symphonic metal songs that have come after this album imitate the trappings of this song but very few of them do it well um i think this one does it really well obviously you disagree but i think like the chorus where Taria sings the the extended first line over the top of the the following four lines, that is mwah. to me that is beautiful. And Chef's kiss, as they say, just really, really sums up. Uh, you know, sort of at the core, a symphonic metal chorus, if you like. Again, the multiple movements, which I'm a big fan of. There's a big orchestral section that comes in at uh, five and a half minutes, uh, with the sort of swing rhythm which is really unusual and I love it. It's very big and again, bombastic. Um, like I said, I think this is a good example of how to do a long song that doesn't feel long because it uses those compositional techniques from classical pieces to move through different movements and keep things well moving. Um, yeah. and so, yeah. So like I said, for me, Oh, and Marco, uh, who I think co-wrote this song, uh, has specifically said that it was influenced by prog rock as well. 
Um, so, you know, there is that, it's a very deliberate influence there. So well, yeah, as I think it works. And I will admit, clearly I have an internal bias against songs. I, I don't know what the exact time is. Let's say over seven minutes long, right. Or over eight minutes long. I, there's just something inherently that I have a reaction to in those songs. So it's almost like they have to do something to really prove to me. Right. You know, that is so, so that's just me right there. I also feel like the fact that this is the second song in this album of the length that we're talking about that does this song a disservice. And I feel yeah. like if, you know, if um, Creek Mary's Blood or this particular song were the only songs of this length on the album, I think it would fit better. And I also, but I still don't know that I would have put it here. I would have, to your point, if you've got one song like this in the center of the album, that's one thing. I also feel like a song like this can work as the final song on an True. album yep. Um, yep. if you're building up to that sort of a thing. But I also like what you said about, you know, finishing it out with shorter tracks, especially if you want to get that, um, you know, flip it over once again and start listening from the beginning um, yeah. sort of thing. Then the, the shorter tracks probably lend themselves to, to that. But if you're, if your goal is to kind of, have the person sit with it for a bit after they finish that last song, then I think you can have it as the, as the last song in the album. But as song nine, when you have 11 songs, nine of 11. Yeah. It's yeah. a lot to ask at that point, especially I, when song 10, as we'll talk about in a minute is a, like another non metal. Doesn't bring you banger. back down to the rocking yeah. sound. Like, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I mean, I, I do think uh, I'll say this now, uh, rather than saving it for the sort of the overall thing. But I do think this album is a little bit too long. Mm. Uh, that's one criticism I have of it. And, you know, I probably, if I was going to take a track off, it probably would be Creek Mary's Blood, even though Dead Gardens and Romanticide are the two that I've said don't sort of keep my attention. But I, I, I agree. Having two songs of that length on the album, I think is okay. Well, I think three or four songs of that length, like, say, a typo negative album or something, fine, because that's clearly your thing. Right, you you've know, established that, it as a pattern. Right. And one becomes a rhyme of the ancient mariner. That's your centerpiece of the mm -hmm. album. But two just feels weird. <laughs> just feels a bit odd. And yeah, I don't know. It, it doesn't quite work for me. But like I said, of the two, this I think is the far better song. The one criticism I have of this song is the fade out. Like surely, surely of all songs, this is the one that deserves a big, powerful <laughs> blast of a finish. We talk about internal biases, right? And if, if, the, I know. if there's yours, like the, the fade out. The fade out. Right. But I mean, like I said, surely of all the songs, they've got an orchestra. You know, you can do that big bombastic finish. And yet, and this is the track to do it, but they don't. Um, it's, yeah, it's the one I find it very baffling but overall as i say i do really like this song i think it, it achieves that aim of being the big gothic romantic storytelling epic i mean it's literally about like a ghost coming back you know to haunt the person that they loved yeah. in life so, i mean come on <laughs> um i just looked it up actually and marco didn't co-write this one this was entirely thomas uh, marco co-wrote romanticide in fact um uh but not this one but yeah, so I, I like it. Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. For anybody that says we don't argue enough. Yeah. <laughs> there, there you go, right there. All right, but track 10, 
Uh, oh God, I've got to try and say this. I have no. So track 10 is the one that's all in Finnish. And that is Kulima Tiki Taitilea. I probably screwed that up, but you know, close enough. Uh, translated to death makes an artist yes and what what he means by that is literally things dying inspires me as an artist which in my opinion is like i mean that's like aaron stainthorpe level on the pretentiometer that yeah. is proper <laughs> you know like wow okay my one note on this song was like it's tough coming from the last song into this and boy does it put a lot of pressure on the last song of the album that that's kind of where I like. Uh, this is where I feel the album to me takes a big misstep. Is like songs nine and ten where they are. Like whether or not you think that they're good songs and they should be on the album or whatever. Thing it's just like it felt like we were pretty locked in for a good component of the album. Then it felt like we maybe diverted a little bit, but we locked back in. And then like it's kind of like that fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, <laughs> kind of shame on me thing. It's can't like get you fooled get, again. <laughs> you get one mistake. Yeah, I can't get fooled again. You get one. You get one. You know what I mean? It's right. like there's you get one choice like that, and then when you get into the second one, it's like it's harder to get past it. And so, yeah, beautiful melody in this song, um, but it doesn't really do anything for me. This is probably the one song in the album that doesn't do much of anything for me like i like i said the um ghost love score doesn't justify its runtime but if you if that song was a little shorter i like i'm right there this one doesn't really regardless of the length like yeah, yeah. it just doesn't really do I mean, anything for me one of my notes about this is that i mean it's a beautiful piece of music you know, uh, it's just Taria and the orchestra. It is, it's a lovely piece of music to listen to. But one of my notes is that I question its placement coming straight after Ghost Love Song. I think putting it before the final track on the album isn't per se a bad thing, but in combination with following on from Ghost Love Score is, uh, I keep saying Ghost, getting confused and saying Ghost Love Song instead of Score, sorry. But coming straight after that in combination with being the penultimate track on the album. I think you're right. I think that's not that that's bad track ordering. Um right. I think if it had been preceded by one or two more, you know, sort of regular length straight ahead rocking tracks, then it would itself be a palate cleanser and kind of, you know, be a break before the final track on the album. But in combination, I agree it's it's weird placement. But it is it is a lovely piece of music by itself. Yeah, and I don't know that we've like that I've clearly articulated like my, my thought about this, but I, the way I think about like the flow of an album is like, what is the overall groove slash tone slash vibe that the album is trying to lock you into? Mm. And then 
does a particular song take you away from that or bring you back to that or keep you in that, right? And so in this situation, if song 10 takes you away from the four and a half minute, you know, um, sort of vibe, you know, locked in um, sort of vibe, does the, or, or does, if track nine does that, you know, does track 10 bring you back toward it or it take you further away from it? And I feel like it just takes you further away from it in mm. this one. So you have more, you have a further distance to come back for the final track on the album. And that's where I like when I say it puts a lot of pressure on the last track. It's like, okay, this really has to bring me back so that I want to flip this album over again and start from the beginning. Yeah. Um, no, I can so, see that. I can see that. I think I agree. Yeah. The, that's a good way of putting it, as you say, that it takes you kind of even further away from the median uh, of the, the feel of the album. Whereas, which again, if it's like the I last say, song. Well, and the and the and the idea is that we're going to start you in one place and we're going to end you in another place. Then that's you know that's the artistic choice, right? It's like sure, okay, we're going to end yeah, off yeah. in a different place than we started. Um, I don't know that that's the goal here, especially given what the final song is on the album. Right. Well, and again, like I said, if it was preceded by some more sort of normal, if you like, songs, uh, then it wouldn't take us as far away from that median of the album, and I think it would work better in that context but yeah so it's i like to say beautiful piece of music but yeah oddly placed um and as you say puts pressure on the final track which is track 11 higher than hope Which is a song that was dedicated to um, Mark Bruland, who was a DJ and an artist in the San Diego area, I believe. He actually died after a seven and a half year battle with cancer at the age of 30. Right. And there's a video out there actually where he is at a performance of Nightwish where they sing this song, you know, and and bring him up on stage. Um, And I think it was when he was, you know, pretty far into his battle um, with cancer. So I didn't, I didn't know any of that story and it was kind of interesting to go back and and sort of look at that, that they, they had developed this connection and this friendship and dedicated this song to him, which was pretty cool. Yeah. It's, uh, I do like this track, but it's not, there could be a stronger ending track. Stronger final track on this album. Um, they they do the chord change chorus thing again. I think it's the third time in this album they do it, and I, I wish they wouldn't. Like they don't need to. It's kind of a 
I've never been much of a fan of chord change on the final chorus. It's a bit cheap. Uh, there are some tracks where it works, but you know, by and large, I'm not a huge fan. Um, the chorus is good. Uh, and this one ends properly. Like this is what I was talking about. The big orchestral ending, like they do it here. Why didn't they do it on ghost love score? I don't know. Um, I feel like we have a Queensryche element to this song as well. I feel like the guitar gets very Queensryche-y. Okay, that's funny because that's not at all... See, what I was going to... The other thing I was going to mention, the guitars to me remind me of Andy from My Dying Bride. Oh. Which is... (laughs) Like, you probably can't get much further away from Queensryche. (laughs) I think it's a combination of the guitars and then uh, Taria's you know, vocals, which obviously Queensryche is a band that's very much well, you know, known for, for its vocals. Um, but yeah, I got a bit of a Queensryche vibe on this one and I thought it was, I think it's a good track. I agree with you that I don't know it should be the final one in the album. I think it buckles under the pressure of trying to bring you back from tracks nine and 10. I just don't, I just don't think it's up to that task. Like it's a good song. If this song was in the middle of the album, I feel like I would feel even more strongly about it. Um, cause it's a good song and I do like, uh, I do like those elements. Like I do like that Queen Drake vibe to it, which also felt different to me than pretty much any other song on the album. So I do feel like it is something that is kind of, this thing is not like the others in, in a bit of that particular way. But as I mentioned earlier, like I think Romanticide could have been the last track on this album or you bump romanticide whether you keep higher than hope at number 11 or not if you have a two-song buffer after ghost love score and you know death makes an artist if there's a two-song buffer to bring you back into the the vibe that you get at the beginning of the album then i think that could have worked too yeah but to put one song after those two and and have it try to close the loop I just don't think that this song is closes that loop completely. Yeah. It's, it's a shame because again, I think it's got a great chorus and a really powerful chorus as well. Uh, you know, one of the, uh, Taria doesn't do an awful lot of sort of like, you know, forceful singing on this album, but she does it here. Um, and I think it really works. Uh, but the rest of the song, the, the verses don't quite live up to the chorus again. Like it's a good track, but yeah, it's hard to separate it from the fact that, as you say, it's been preceded by two, you know, like one epic and then another song that sounds like nothing else on the album. Um, you know, it's impossible to listen to it without that context and wonder whether it might have fared better if there were other tracks in front of it or if it was elsewhere on the album, as you say. Um, it's a tricky one. It's it's definitely worth seeing the live performance of this again because it is, is, it's dedicated to Mark Bruland. Um, you know, you you have uh, lyrics like the hopes were high, the choirs were vast. Now my dreams are left to live through you. It's a beautiful tribute, and um, that's a powerful performance. The the live performance of it. So um, when's that from? Is that with Taria still fronting? Yeah, them? I'll tell you right now when it's from. Let me pull it up. Uh, hopefully, it doesn't start playing. Hit the pause button. Okay, it is from two thousand six. It looks like right. So that would be like, yeah, just before time. Oh, I'm sorry. It it was 2003 because I believe he passed in 2003. Um, Someone wrote 
This is from 2003, the first time Nightwish played in the USA. Oh, right. Wow. Um, Thomas called his friend Mark from San Diego. Uh, Mark was dying with cancer at the time. On the last chorus, you can see Taria turning to Mark because she was talking to him before the concert. Um, and apparently her mother also passed from cancer, according to some of the comments in this video. So um, so 2003, the video was posted in 2006, but it looks like it was from 2003. Right. Uh, yeah, well, I'll have to give it, send us the link. I will send you the, the link so that you yeah. can put it in the show notes. Absolutely. Uh, yep. Yeah, and that's the end of the album. Let's say it does end at least with a nice big orchestral uh, you know, ending. Um, and that's your lot. So what did you think overall, given that this was the first full Nightwish album you'd ever listened to? Loved it. I think it's a great album overall. And, you know, as I mentioned, it kind of changed what, whatever my vision was in my head of Nightwish, right? Which is, I think I have that default template of like, oh, this isn't going to be heavy enough for me. Mm. And then listening to this album multiple times all the way through, it's like, it is. It's. I mean, it literally punches you in the first song and establishes that tone that I think they, you know, with some departures, pretty much maintain um, throughout. The orchestral components of this are absolutely beautiful. The choir is amazing on this album. And that's in addition to, like, Taria's incredible vocals. Mm. And so all of those things together, I think it has that punch it has amazing melody. It has soaring vocals. It has a few guitar solos. You know, it has, uh, and it's got some great riffs. Um, the bass, again, stands out to me throughout the album as like, you can hear it, but more importantly, you can feel it yeah. in almost all of the songs in this album. And so it just, the whole album pops to me. It you It's a like you said, the psychosomatic element of it, like you can feel this album and it, it goes to a lot of different places. Um, it made me want to dig further into their catalog. So I guess it, I guess this album kind of made me a Nightwish fan. Um, <laughs> well, and even I, though I'm I, super late to the party and I know they've had, you know, changes in singers and things like that. Like it definitely made me want to get more into their stuff. Well, and I think it's, so you said, you know, that you kind of want to go back and listen to their earlier stuff with Taria. I think that's going to be fascinating because, like I said, when they started out, they were much more of a power metal band, which obviously I know you like. So you may well find that you prefer their earlier stuff to this. Um, and then the album after this, uh, Dark Passion Play, which was the first one with uh, Annette Olsen, was musically similar to this, but vocally she is a world away from Taria. Like, great vocalist, yeah. great voice, but sounds absolutely nothing like her. And that was a deliberate. They deliberately didn't want to pick somebody who would sound like a kind of cheap copy of uh, Taria, which I think was sensible and wise, but also, I think, probably led to her only being with them for a couple of albums and then them getting floor in, who can do that same sort of operatic style that Taria had. Um which is, you know, I feel bad for Annette in a way. But I wonder if you will like Dark Passion Play as well, just because even though, as I say, musically it's quite similar to this, vocally, because of Annette's style, it has a very different vibe. Uh, and he's much more sort of, I guess you could call it sort of more traditional heavy rock as a result. So yeah, I'll be interested to hear what you think of those. I will definitely check back in about that. And I found more information on the Mark Brulin story. 
Uh, apparently, while he was searching through a comp- through compilation CDs for his DJing sets, he stumbled across an album featuring a cover of Walking in the Air by the platinum-selling Finnish heavy metal band Nightwish. So Nightwish ah. did a cover of that song. Remembering this song from his favorite childhood cartoon, he immediately called his mother and shared the song. So he then developed a friendship with the band, and he traveled to see them perform. During the performance, the band dedicated the song Walking in the Air to him during that particular concert. So the link that I will send you is them performing Walking in the Air and dedicating it to him because it sounds like that was the song that led him to Nightwish. So it is them doing Walking in the Air, right? Correct. Yeah, which is, so, which is from The Snowman. Uh, everybody in Britain knows that song because The Snowman like gets shown every Christmas. <laughs> which makes uh, sense that he passed away in October of 2003. This album came out in 2004 and the song on the album is a, is a tribute is to dedicated him. to him. Yeah. Correct. Right. So, uh, okay. Okay. That does make now, sense. Yeah. Now I think we were, we're, we're, we're straight. We're, we're straight <laughs> with that. Um, yeah. It's like, there's old Facebook posts about it and things like that. It's inter- It was interesting doing some research for this band because there's so many different like fan pages and stuff about Nightwish and, you know, old message board posts and things like that, but not as much like mainstream. There really isn't. Yeah. Interviews. And it was kind of wild. Like I, I felt like there's an obscurity to, to a lot of the history and resources about this band other than like just going to Wikipedia. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, it, it was, it right. was kind it of interesting for a band that has such a discography and a history and, and such a um, varied history. Right. I mean, they've been through a, a fair amount of drama over the course of their careers for sure, but you're right that they're not, that they kind of fly under the radar for, for which is bizarre when you consider that they have sold millions of records. Um, it's uh, yeah, but they, you're right. They don't get a lot of press. They don't get it. I wonder if some of that is just down to them. I've noticed since Floor became their lead vocalist, they actually do do more press. And I wonder how much of it in the past has just been because of them being Finnish. Yeah. Uh, partly because, obviously, you know, very few people, let's face it, actually know much about Finland. But also because, and this is based purely on the Finns that I know, and I, I do know a few, mostly through the games industry, um, Finns are a very not reserved well they yeah kind of reserved and self-effacing people like you know they're they're sort of the national character is to just kind of not really make a big song and dance about yourself or about the things that you're doing um and so i wonder if that's part of why they've never sought the limelight so they've never you know they often get sort of overlooked for bands who maybe scream and shout a lot more you know uh, squeaky wheel gets the grease and all that yeah well in any case i definitely want to go in uh not only hear their previous albums but also what came after with the different singers and things like that but overall really enjoyed this album um there's most of the songs on this album are great and to go back to what you said like the way that they're using the orchestra and the choir in here is just so interwoven into the songs that you couldn't separate them no, absolutely. Like yeah. they're 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 not. They're It'll be not like taking the drums out or something. It correct. Just, what yes, are you doing? Like they are. <laughs> they are part of the fabric of the song, which is really cool. And sure. uh, I'm glad that we did it because a band that I have seen their name millions of times. I obviously, you know, um, didn't know as much about them as I, you know, now want to know. So it was a good good choice. 
Cool. All right. Well, before we get to the homework, uh, I will give the usual spiel and say thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, remember, if you enjoy the show, please spread the word, tell your friends, rate us on your podcast, you know, catalogue of choice. <laughs> um, and of course, go to patreon.com slash thrash out where you can pledge and support us and help us keep making the show. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and Twitter. And you can, of course, join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out and tell us what you thought. So homework, Brian, your turn. What are we going to talk about next time? Boy, I was thinking about this. I still hadn't decided when we started recording this episode. Oh, wow. (laughs) uh, In terms of like, there were two that I was going to kind of go between. But I think that we're going to go with... And this I can't wait to see the reaction to this one. We're going to go with the 1993 album Pull from Winger. Oh, we're finally doing a Winger album. We are oh, doing wow. the Winger album. And I am super interested to hear what you think about this album. Um, so this is the third studio album from Winger. Obviously, we'll talk about that more when we get into the episode. But uh, in 1993, so we are now fully in the changing of the tides as far as the grunge movement and things like that. What we talked about earlier, yeah, yeah. Winger was very successful in the latter part of the 80s. They were one of that sort of wave of bands that came in, I would say, second or third wave um, that we can sort of talk about. And very much, um, you know, uh, almost the poster band for the hair metal era um partly because of beavis and butthead which we'll talk about when we when we get into that um but yeah this album is definitely a a a pivot for them i think and probably my favorite winger album so wow i do not have a favorite winger album because (laughs) once again i have never knowingly heard a winger song in my life you Yes, you have unknowingly heard Winger songs in okay. your life. However, okay. those songs are not on this album. All right. And so it's okay. going to be interesting to... Uh, but I, I will send you the songs that I'm almost positive that you've heard from okay. your previous albums, just to give you a little bit of context for where they were and kind of where they went. Okay. Um, but yeah, we're doing the Winger album. This is... You know, we did the Rat album, now we're doing the Winger album. <laughs> Today I settle all family business. Yep. <laughs> all right, brilliant. Well, I really look forward to that because, yeah, that's going to be a, a real adventure for me. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. There's nothing more to say. Winger is the next one. Thank you, everybody, for listening and keep thrashing. Take care, everybody. This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album. Blah. Okay, let me try that again. (laughs) (laughs) You can keep that as an official opening. Yeah, Uh, yeah, that will go at the end after the music. (laughs) 